You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Everybody, this is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. On with me today is Joe Castle. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Dirk. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, Joe, a little story with Joe. I met Joe years ago, a mutual friend of mine who lived in Ketchum, Idaho, uh, uh, was friends with Joe. And, and I'm in the lending world, mortgages. And I, and I was uh, fortunate enough to meet Joe. And just one of those guys, one of the beauties of my job is I get to meet interesting people. And um, anyway, it's just a guy that I always like. And then I kind of watched, I know he, he moved away and, you know, he's an artist. And I'm going to let him elaborate and articulate what that means. But I have a lot of um, respect uh, and admiration for people that go down the road less traveled, you know, and choose careers that align with their passion and who they are. And so I always gravitate towards those people and Joe's one of them. So Joe, you know, if you're on a plane, let's say you're flying somewhere and someone says, hey, what do you do? How would you answer that? I, I, it's, I'm a sculptor, which ironically usually gets, um, people don't understand what that entails. So you go through the process, but then one flight, it was so funny. I was sitting next to another former, another sculptor and we had the greatest flight ever. So I, you never know who you're going to run into. So you're a sculptor, but you're also, you, you're an artist, you paint. I know that you like to write. Um, You're definitely creative. Um, But like, talk to me what that means. Sculpting. What are you sculpting? Right now I'm doing heads. it's kind of morphed out of a series called the uh, Intimate Stranger. And the series is based on uh, go, a visit to Walter Reed Hospital and seeing the vets coming home and uh, with uh, rehabilitating their life mentally, physically, and uh, seeing uh, them pursue their uh, their struggles, if you will. And my dad had passed away, I think a year before that, and really never really connected into my, how I was feeling about it and how I was being, um, not being, I, I hate to use this word, but not being respectful to my intimacy with myself. And so I wanted, I took a dive into it, try to figure it out. So is your sculpting very specific or do you, are you a generalist at all? Or do you just kind of have a niche that you kind of stick with? Um, I'm, that's a good question. I, tend to go both ways on that. If During the series, um, I'd adhere to the series, but then I'll make a leapfrog to change from a from that series to another series. So that way I'm a generalist. I don't, I know some sculptors, like a friend of mine who, and teachers that I worked with would stay on one series for the rest of their life. I'm not that guy. I, okay. I kind of move quickly. Can or, you- yeah. What, what does that mean? Series. What does that mean? I, I'm not sure. I'm not understanding that. No, that's a, another great question. I, I think for the audience, that's a body of work that yeah. I'm, I work with. And the great thing about being an artist or some detriments are the fact that you, you have to have a, a body of work to show to a client or show to a gallery. That's your client. Or right now it would be the website. 
so that that way the galleries or cities know that that's a consistent body of work and they can rely on you to give you that give them that work so that they can go to their client and say this is joe castle he's been working for 40 years this series comes out has morphed out of this series but um he's been working on this series for 10 years okay and this is the body of work that he's created from that series so that's interesting. So I'm going to ask you some elementary questions just because I, I'm not an artist. I don't Please. think I, I don't think I, I am that. at least, but, uh, <laughs> but okay. So when you're an artist and you're trying to, I guess, make a living, get compensated, um, we'll get into what drives you down in a little bit, but so are you saying that whether it's like say an individual who loves art and collects or a gallery, you know, if you're a one trick pony and you do one thing really well, but you kind of don't do any other projects, are you saying that's kind of not looked down upon, but that's probably not a smart route to go? Like you need to be, you know, come out with something, but you need to show them that you can keep doing that. Yeah. You can be definitely a one trick pony. It's like your business. I mean, you can make a great mortgage for somebody, but if you don't have a track record, those people are going to be suspect. And same thing, I mean, it is a business and you have to make sure, or I always had to make sure that my gallery or the, like I do public art, that they would be ensured that their the value of my work would increase as with time, like okay. a house, if you yeah. will. You want to make sure that house is going to be, keep its value or, or raise its value so that you're successful as a mortgage broker. So are you, do you have a gallery or are you trying to get your art in another gallery or both? Um, I'm trying to get into another gallery. I, I just got into the Westmont uh, Museum the, this last week for a triennial show. But with COVID, that kind of washed a lot of things away that I had permanently. And now I'm kind of uh, going back and um I'm looking at Bakersfield Art Museum is looking Museum of Art is looking at my work right now. Um, a couple of other people, which is exciting because it's it gave me the opportunity to change my style again to re COVID was a blessing, but a curse at the same time. I understand. So it's interesting. Again, I'm thinking like a, a writer who likes to write on rock music and they're trying to get in the Rolling Stone. So in your world, do artists are they? Are, are there specific galleries that are like, what are you getting out of that? Is it a certain audience that's going to see yours or is the gallery pay you more based on the type of gallery or like, what is the driver behind trying to get into this gallery versus that gallery? There's always a great, you know, best galleries, if you will, just like Rolling Stone is the best, is the marquee for rock music, if you will. Um, but as a young artist, even myself, you kind of kind of peck your way up the ladder. And my work is not is not for everybody. I was in a gallery in Santa Barbara that loved my early work because it wasn't really um, it was nice. It looked good in a garden. And now my work is much more raw and much more personal. And I try and make it universal. But at the same time, that gallery is not going to take a chance because they don't it's not their style and they can't see their client liking what I do. So again, I, it's hard to 
um, it was hard for me when I was younger to understand that they have clients that they have to appeal to. You have to appeal to the, ga the right gallery and then they have to sell your work because they believe in you. If yeah, that makes it makes a lot of uh, sense. It's, it's almost like the, the divergent or the line between bending your knee uh, to play the game and, and being who you are, like being true to who you are. And at, at, at some point in life, you have to kind of figure out what you're going to do. And it sounds like you stay true to who you are and, and the core of your uniqueness or your niche. And then, you know, maybe you just find a better gallery that's more in alignment. And the great thing about the website web now is that you can find a gallery that would adhere to your style much easier than when I started. I mean, you really had to, especially in Philadelphia, it's pretty staid. And they, I mean, not, they have some work that's sort of like mine, but those guys are experienced, established artists. And when you're coming out, you're not established and you got to, you know, show in banks or show in, you know, schools or shows somewhere that you may not necessarily want to, but it kind of built, it's a resume builder. And, you know, again, it's a business and people like to see, you know, that, that piece of paper that says that you're going to be around for a while or you've established yourself. Yeah, this is really interesting to me because I'm thinking of somebody that's coming out of school that's really creative, really talented. And like, you have to kind of make a living too and make money and pay the bills. So as an artist, like when you get in with a gallery, are they actually paying you for your art or are they pay are they giving you the opportunity to get paid in terms of creating an audience that's going to come view it versus an artist that say just very popular and very wealthy people or whatever want to buy your art and you're just selling directly to the person. Like is, are those the two ways that an artist makes a living? There are three ways, but I'll go into your two ways. Like the other day I sold to a client that came into my studio. So I didn't have to go to the gallery. Galleries predominantly, let's say where I was in Santa Barbara, you had a, a geographical zone or they like a geographical zone in which you cannot show your work other than them so that they can have, you know, dibs if you're, especially if you're known. If you're really well known, they really want to like a um Emmanuel Nuri, who I really admire as a sculptor, will show in San Francisco. And if and if he in the gallery that he's showing in will say you can't show it anywhere in California unless it's a museum. And I they I get it because they want the thirty thousand dollars to come their way. I mean, and not any other way. And if you come into my gallery and let's say you heard about me from Sullivan Goss. I have to say, I, you know, I have to talk to, I have to talk to the powers that be and say that we had this conversation because I owe half my salary to them because they'll take half. But Is that the deal? They take half of what you sell it for? Pretty much. That's pretty oh. standard. Then the other standard is sculptors. It's different. They'll take, you say, I say, um, I need foundry costs to be paid for. After foundry costs is paid for, then I'll go half. And they usually agree to that because it's so expensive to get the foundry. But then again, what does that mean, foundry? I don't understand. What sorry, that is. working at a foundry. Most of my work is bronze. So to turn it into bronze, I go, I work in a foundry to, to pour it in bronze and to make it a bronze product. 
But like, again, Emmanuel Nuri, who's established and very well known and internationally known, some galleries do buy them outright. They'll say, you know, we would love your piece because they know that, let's say it's a, um, for lack of a better word, $10,000 piece, they know that it can sell for 50. So they're making, you know, they're, they're almost like hedge funders, if you will. Yeah. And they're, you know, and that's a well-established gallery. So I, I would think that with after COVID, that's kind of infrequent because people are so scared about their money or where they are with their money. Whereas before, you know, as you know, the lending rate was so much lower that you could, you know, do it and not be, you know, leverage your, your gallery. Now they're yeah. kind of, so. Yeah. It's also, I'm just thinking about like, this comes up in every podcast that I have is especially when I'm interviewing creative people is the skill sets of that you have, and you may have this, but it doesn't always translate to being a good business owner or doing all the, you know, the number crunching and the, the expenses and recruiting. And, and so it sounds like the gallery might provide that part of the equation. You know, if you just want to focus on the art, but not ha having your own gallery and paying a, you know, a lease, et cetera, it might be a good fit to go that direction. Well, yes, without a doubt. But then you have to make sure that you, you know, you're consistent with your work uh, and that gallery is, you have to make sure that that gallery is going to have a staying power. Because as we know, you know, art's hard to sell it, it, and, and you have to make the appeal to them that you're sellable, which marketable, I should say, not sellable. Well What's the commitment like? I mean, are you signing your life away or is it like you sign, is it like five projects and we're we're done or is it a two year commitment? Like, how does that stuff work? When I first started out, they would take a chance with you. Like, uh, let's say Solomon Goss, using them as an example. When I moved here, they took a chance with me with maquettes, which is a model of a bigger piece that I was going to do. So they they put them out on display to, and they're they were just like five to ten inches tall, and the easy easy to accessible, easy to sell, and then they said, okay, all those sold. Um, what else do you have in the next size, if you will? And then they'll take a chance on that, and then eventually you have a one man show, if you will, and you got to you know prove that you can do it. And yeah. Yeah. You got to back it up. So yeah. you said there's three avenues. There's one gallery. Uh, one public, I mean, pro private, which I just had, let's say that the one that I just had where the woman from uh, Bakersfield saw my work and liked it and bought it right then and there. And then there's public art, which a lot of sculptors do. And um, I've been like, I had the last show I had was at Buellton uh, at their Avenue of the Flags and honor the vets. So I got a grant from the city to put them up with the possibility of having a permanent collection there if somebody came up and bought it, which we, it didn't happen, but a lot of public art goes, um, we have a program called the one percenters or the 10 percenters. So if a building goes up and it's $200,000, $20,000 has to go into the art. And that was, started in Philadelphia. Seattle has a great program, a great um, um, public art program. And that can entail, you know, murals, sculptors. Uh, it, it's become very broad, which is great because it doesn't, it, 
it used to be just pretty much sculptors for public art. Now it's Philadelphia has a great mural project, which was started and that that has taken on a great public art program or enhanced the public art program, I should say. So I'm just thinking this is it's very interesting because I like, there's so much you don't know. Like this is why I'm just curious about careers and jobs and all the stuff behind the scenes. So I have a friend that's um, in the business. Um, his stepdad owns Bellevue Square and the all he, he does a lot of development. And I remember one time talking about like how selective they are in like like Orange Julius was like the top growth, you know, they made them, they did so well. They are one of the tenants in Bellevue Square. And but they're very selective in who they bring into the mall, even though they're these people are paying a lot of money for rent. And I guess my question is, is it similar like public work. I mean, there's only so much real estate, so many places to show your art. Is it, is that a hard, is that a, uh, I don't want to say invitation, but is it hard to get in? Cause you can't just put a hundred murals in. They're probably looking for one, right? Truly. And you, you submit work and most of the time you get rejected. I mean, I mean, I, I could, I could fill my house with rejection letters, I, but that said, you know, that's always that one chance that you get that you, that people like your work know that know your know that your commitment and it is difficult as you said i mean using that analogy but that's why you have a portfolio that's why you have to have a, a body of work that public art is really really good for those people that have a strong body of work i wouldn't recommend it for a kid that just came out of college unless he's working with somebody or um honestly know somebody i mean okay. that has that has a lot of Wait, if you will. I mean, my best public art program is in Atlanta, Georgia. And Dirk, you saw my studio in, in Bellevue, Idaho. And he walked into my, he, we had the wedding. My my ex and I had our wedding at outside our house. And he walked, just happened to walk in my studio, saw the work and said, I'd like to buy it. So I got extremely lucky. I mean, I thank God for having a wedding at the house. That paid for the wedding, right? Or some of so. it, yeah, more in more ways than one. That's I sure. bet I, I love it. So you rep, you reference the kid coming out of college. Let's let's take that young adult, that male, female, that super creative, super into the art. Like they're they're bought in. They're this is my life. What what what's your advice to someone like that to start? Like you mentioned, public art probably isn't the best go to initially. What is your advice to someone that's coming out of school? And, you know, has to make a living, but wants to follow their heart. What would you say is the best course of action? I personally would say go work with an artist if you could. If you could find somebody that you really like. I got lucky. I worked with an artist and I got my chops in the business sense of the art world, the commitment of the art, because I think most and this is terrible to say, but most people that aren't artists think that it's a. Uh, and when you work with an artist, you understand that it's just as important as a banker or a lawyer, or he had hours that were longer than bankers, lawyers. I mean, we were working 12, 14 hour days, sleeping in the studio, making things happen. But it gave me that work ethic that I wasn't a dilettante or wasn't something that, oh, I can, you know, when the whims happen, I got to, I'll go in my studio. His, I, his, you know, we worked every day that ends and why. Yeah. This is but, insane. 
But so, artists are not more important than mortgage bankers, though, right? Exactly. Okay. Let's really? just let's just make that <laughs> let's make that clear. So, why would a really good artist like why would they take somebody on? Like, what is it that that new person's giving an established, credible artist? That's a great question. I think you're. As I get older, I can't lift the things I used to be able to lift. And also, I think, like, I'll, I'm going back into teaching next year, and I think I'm going to be 63. I just want to give back. I mean, I really, maybe I'm old-fashioned that way, but I really get a charge out of seeing kids get a light and just saying, you know, I've, I've had a great career. I've been very fortunate. And if I can help out somebody that's wants to do something similar to me or maybe not do something, but at least I, we have a relationship. and. I think that's most artists maybe don't think that way. They think the young artist, like my teacher, probably thought, oh, he's he's fit. He can lift things. I'll take him on, even though I wasn't. I mean, I, I, I Myron would probably attest that I wasn't the most talented, but I was the most um, uh, stubborn, if you will. I just didn't give up. I like and, it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is that perseverance and looking at the long-term goal. What is your, you don't, and how, why you make work. I think those three things always have to, if I would have to say to my students that really want to go, why do you make your work? And what is your long-term goal? Because you have to, the, the immediate satisfaction is not going to come unless you're really, really lucky. And God bless you if you are. I mean, but for the most part, you're working until you're 60, 70 years old, and then it hits. Yeah. All of a sudden, somebody says, wow, oh, hmm, Joe's doing something nice. <laughs> yeah, but it also might, I mean, I, just from afar, I have some friends that are artists. It doesn't feel like work. I mean, it almost feels like part of who you are. And it's kind of like, oh, by the way, yeah, I guess it's my career, but it's, kind of you identify it, you know, like I don't identify as a mortgage guy. I, I identify as a, a father and a husband and a couple other things, but it, it's a, fa it's a fabric of kind of who you are, which kind of leads me to the question, you know, and I'm never going to assume that everyone thinks like me, but I came out of college with a dad who was very superficial, loved him, but he was all about the money and comparing and so I always, you know, grew up looking around and thinking I had to live on the lake or, and it was exhausting because it was a, a race that nobody wins, but yeah. here you are at 26. I think that's the age you decided to commit. Like, were there voices in your head about like, you talked about law school or did you like, Hey, I don't really care about what society thinks or does. I'm just, I'm going to, you know, I don't have much to my name right now and I'm going to roll with it. I, I'd be kidding you if I didn't hear those voices. I mean, yeah. they definitely were there. Oh, they were. Without a doubt. I mean, I, yeah, my dad, the expectations were definitely high. Okay. And I think I had the advantage of, again, living, living in Colorado. My dad was in Philadelphia. My mom were in Philadelphia. So what they didn't see, they didn't hear. And so and it was good for me because it was great for um, me to take the chances, if you will. I love but it. Same, but at the same time, I definitely, I mean, I, I was like, you know, living in a food pond mattress in your car, wondering, you know, what the hell? I mean, I, I, 
I honored in my subjects. I did very well in school. And I was like, what the hell am I doing this for at times? And then, you know, you, you meet other artists and you understand why, if that makes sense. Yeah. You find your tribe. So what were um, the voices like there's, there's people watching this right now that their dad wants them to be an attorney and their mom wants them to be a doctor and whatever. And their friends are all going to New York to work on wall street or whatever. Like any advice you can give to someone who's coming out of school or in their thirties and they're they they have all these voices that are distracting them from following a path that is in alignment with who they are. Like, do you have any thoughts or advice? Like, let's just say you had a, a son coming through and no. he's struggling. And what would you say to somebody that's like, you know, really kind of alone? Yeah. No, and, yeah. I hear you. I, that, that's a great question. I think find your people or find again, older people that did what you want to do. I think mentorship is an unspoken gift that I cannot give up. I mean, I, I will say that Myron, I, we had a father son relationship. I hated him at times. I, he hated me at times. I mean, he would just sit there and say, I don't think you'll ever get it. And then all of a sudden I'm having a one man show at his studio and I'm not many people had one man shows at his studio and, and his daughter calls me up and says, I would like you to do an interview for my dad because he just passed away. And then you're just like, and I think maybe I was just so such a knucklehead. I just wanted to prove to everybody that I could do it. But I just, I think also that find those people that, yeah, have done it before okay. and don't be afraid to um, change up. Like I worked with Myron for a while and after a while I got burned out because it was, he was such a taskmaster. And I worked with another gentleman who was completely different, both equally powerful in their mentorship, but I still had that older person that, I could kind of lean on and not um, that the expectations of for me was just self-induced instead of external. I mean, it was my belief systems and kind of have to break that down. Yeah. Uh, that's I, the whole belief system. Something I've been working on for a long time is un unwiring belief systems that no longer serve me. Yeah. Which doing might, the same thing, which might seem a little deep, but I, I do a lot of meditation yeah. Um, and that really seems to, when you get out of your head and stop thinking with your monkey brain and, um, you get, you become aware of your thoughts as well. Yeah. And, you know, the thoughts aren't really the world you live in. They're just, you know, it's kind of like what you think the world is, but it's an interesting uh, direction we can go down. But one of the things I, before I forget is you've been in the business or I should say in the career for a That's, long time, it's a business, business, <laughs> business, career, passion. What is the biggest, um, surprise or biggest aha not only good but bad and like again like this podcast is not about trying to um push people into sculpting or being an artist it's to give a no bs like this is what the lifestyle is about so i like to kind of like you know like what did you learn that you didn't see coming that like oh boy if i knew this i probably wouldn't have done this or you know, I love this part of the job and I never thought this was part of the job. I'll start with the first one first. I think the, um, the process 
I love. I just love the process. I think it's, I think if you're really in tune with what you do, you love the process, no matter what. Either if it's banking, you love that process. You love meeting people, making them feel comfortable about where they're putting, securing their finances. For me, it's like finding out how to make something new or different or say it in a, in a unique way. And I just, I just love it. I've, I've been very fortunate that way. And I think this, the, the, the other part of that question, which you asked was, what am I so shocked about? I think, and I'll the story I'll share is kind of will help you. I did a Christ figure and I put, and I had him rotting at the cross and I put no hands and took off his head. And, and I told the minister, I said, you know, I hit the, I had a home run. This is awesome. Me thinking it's awesome. Not thinking that the audience might not understand this. And, and I think that I tend to go really deep, really fast and really, I get it but sometimes I forget to tell my audience what I got and it's hard to communicate why I did it the way I did it. And so I, I get upset when people like ask me, they asked me to take it down because it was too revealing. And I was just like, well, how do we know that didn't happen? And then I'm like being defensive when I shouldn't be defensive. I'm like, I can explain the story and then they, I explained it. I was like, well, if I were Pontius Pilate, I'd do this because, you know, he's committing treason against the Roman Empire. So therefore, I take off his PowerPoints, his hands and his, and his head. And if the 12 disciples want to do the same, then that's what's going to happen to you. And they were like, well, why did you say that beforehand? I was like, I didn't have the story. <laughs> I, or I didn't have it, like, fermented in my head. I had it fermented in what I want, how I wanted to communicate. Yeah. I'm guessing as an artist, because you got to go deep. I mean, I, I'm assuming you got to go places that most people don't go just because they're not artists, they're bankers or they're accountants or so to, to understand the depth of where the art comes from probably is something that I guess if I'm an artist, I would, I would eventually just kind of maybe give up on thinking that people can really go there. Not, not some people can, but I would think that could be an issue. Like when you, when you're trying to articulate and express your art, people, not everyone's going to follow, not everyone's going to jump on board. I would think, am I, am I off there or is that pretty No, common? I think that's, that, that's an accurate assessment. I mean, I, but at the same time, it goes back to our, my, the question, why are you doing your work? I mean, are you doing it for, him, her, or are you doing it so that you have something important to talk about that the itch doesn't go away until you've finished the work? And that's kind of where I am. I'd rather, like you said, with meditation, it's kind of my, you know, me going to church every day, going to the studio. And it's, you know, I'm not doing it. And I think the older I get, I could care less what people think. I know it's good work. And and I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to be smug. It's good to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, like, does the why, is it about you and a feeling that you get? Or is it the why about trying to make people think differently or feel differently? Like when you say you don't care what other people think, <laughs> I, but my feeling is you care 
because you have a goal of how you want it to impact people or or you would just put your art in your own backyard but i would think you do care about what people think yes that's what that's well said i but i think also that it's up to because as we know dirk that everybody's got a you know a slate that that's filled with memories that is not your slate filled with memories and that's where i think as a young artist i didn't realize that their slate is different than my slate and really, I, you have to respect that. And um, for example, I was—I'm laughing because I'm putting—I was putting up the piece in Violton, and and it's the pieces are pretty raw. They're not easy to look at. This guy looks at me and just is like this. You know, can I curse? I mean, he's basically cursing at me, yelling at me, telling me this is not—you know—this is not honoring the vets. These. These look like Hiroshima victims. They're terrible. And I'm sitting there putting the last screw in and my knees are killing me. My back's killing me. And I, pay, I have to pick up my kids in 10 minutes. And I'm looking at him. And I'm like, you moron, I'm the artist. <laughs> and he just looks at me like, but at the same time, I respect what he had to say because it gave him an emotion that maybe he wasn't ready for. Or he was, you know, that that. I had him say something, so God bless him. And I mean, it's maybe not what I wanted to hear, but he wanted to hear it. <laughs> I guess that's the beauty of art. I mean, it's not black and white, right? It's, um, I had a podcast guest on last week and he is a composer of movie scores and he's very successful. He's done a lot of movies that you and I have seen. And that's the thing that I've always thought I, if I could do anything it would be to write m music. And I love music scores specifically and, you know, movies like Cinema Paradiso and Somewhere oh. in Time and just the mel melodic background music. It just, it's like a language that it speaks to me in a, you know, to my, in a way that I can't really articulate. It's just, um, and I would think that it would be similar as an artist for you is you create something and you might create a feeling inside people that they didn't even know was there. And I guess that would probably feel pretty damn good, right? Very well said. And it could be positive. It could be negative. I mean, it's, and, but they're all feelings. And I, again, I do that for that reason. I'm not going to tell you how to think and how to feel because that's, I, so I want to direct you, but I think I also want to give you room enough to, make your opinion be heard if you will i love that and you made me think of a quote do you know who victor frankel is yeah so and i I'll, tommy boy is a movie you know he butchers he's trying to be a sales guy so i'm probably going to tommy boy this quote but he talks about like when you are between stimulus and reaction there's a space and in that space is your opportunity opportunity to choose your reaction and in that reaction lies your growth and so something like that, where I, you know, like back in the old days, I would react very quickly, like if something disturbed my peace. And as I've gotten older, I find that I don't react as quick. And usually if something's disturbing my peace, there's something there to think about. And so my guess is when somebody has a negative reaction to your art, there's probably something there that that person should pay attention to right well said it's a projection of their stuff yeah I mean, you know like when you get mad at your kid or get mad at your 
you know, student or something like that. Sometimes a lot of times it's about you, not about them. I love it. Um, I, last thing I'll say, you like when you're talking, it reminds me, have you read the book, the fountainhead? Yeah. So that's one of my favorite books and my favorite is Howard Rourke. And I love the, the, his character because he's his architect yeah. who just does it his way. And he's brilliant, but he gets a lot of pushback and a lot of opportunity to bend his knee. And he never does. And, you know, I, I love how he, I don't know what the word is, but he just stayed true to his path, even when the temptations and like, you know, it's just to me, that's when I think of being an artist, I feel like you need to be a Howard Rourke. I think you do. But at the same time, I think like Myron was very much that okay. the man that I worked with. And I, I think if you're a teacher or an artist, you can also be very instrumental in like educating. I mean, unfortunately, our, our culture is not Europe. Europe is much better at educating the arts. We're not. And so my job is at times I feel like it's okay if you disagree with me or have dissonance with my work. Let's have a conversation about it. Just, and I, I feel like right now we're afraid to have the conversation. I'm like, no, no, let's do, let's, you know, let's bite into it. If you don't like it. Okay. You know, what part, what, what is it about this? And, um, hopefully on a good day, I'll listen and respond and, We'll have a great conversation because I think that's my job. I mean, I think that, but at the same time, I think you, you have to comply somewhat to, I can't, you can't live in a bubble. I mean, I think that Myron, God bless him. I loved him to death. He was a, like, as I said, he was like a father to me, but he, he lived in a bubble and he thought that everybody should be this way. And it's kind of like, um, you know, not everybody had your opportunities, Myron. Not everybody went to Oxford. Not everybody, you know, did all this kind of stuff. And not everybody, you know, can be as dogmatic as you and and really don't want to be. So, yeah, I, you know, I, it's like, you know, easy to track bees with honey than it is with vinegar kind of yeah. philosophy. No, I, I get mean, it. Um, I am curious before we as we wind kind of wind down a little bit. I'm I'm wondering what it, you know, you talk about a series, but like, I'm curious what that looks like as far as, let's just say there's an initial project and, and they say, hey, we'd love you to do something like this. Um, and I know it can probably vary, you know, but are we talking like this can take you one month, two years, you know, and then also what's the day look like? Are you up? Are you one of those stereotypical dudes that stay up all night with the music on? You know, and then, I mean, like, what does the behind the curtains look like? So on a, on a, on a length wise, like how long does it take you to complete a project on average? And then what are your days like? Days are, I'll start with the first one, the latter. Um, days are pretty early, six. And if I have the kids, I get to the studio at eight, eight fifteen. If I don't have the kids, I'm there at seven, seven thirty. And um, days could be like today. It's honestly i was shellacking a, a piece of plywood before i talked to you so i can get ready to paint and um the prep up getting ready to prep up and do that and i'll probably paint tonight because i don't have the kids um but normal series would take two to three years like I, for the 
Bakersfield Art Museum. I'm hoping that they give me a two-year period so that I can, I want to dedicate it to the uh, migrant workers. And there's a piece that I want to put in the center and then everything around that would adhere to the, the uh, field workers okay. and the migrant workers and their way of life, if you will. So two or three years, does that mean one project or like 10 projects? Or that 10? would be, for the most part, 10 to 15 sculptures. Okay. And if I get, you know, get a grant or, you know, make, talk to you about getting a loan. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about it. So maybe like 30 to 45 days, maybe to do a project or a, a sculpture? What predominantly I do is, is work on the sculpture and then set it aside. Like I have, I think right now I have about 15 sculptures in the studio that are ready to, I'm trying to make ready for molds, which to make the mold, to pour, to make it to go to bronze. And I just haven't, don't have the resources right now to make the molds. And I don't have the resources to do the bronze. And I don't have a, like the, uh, I don't have a museum or a gallery to go for that piece. So I'm holding off on that. But predominantly, I usually make my work like, and then after I finish 10, I'll take a time period where I'm like molds for all those 10 pieces so okay. that I can make it into bronze. Okay. But right now, I'm just holding it off because COVID, as I said, hit us, hit the art world pretty hard. And I so, just, yeah, you've referenced COVID a couple of times. Are you just basically referring to the fact that people weren't out and about, which means they weren't seeing your content? Exactly. And, and a lot of galleries shut down, especially in California. We were just hyper vigilant on not having any, you know, buddy personal personal invitations and things like that. So okay. it locked down. So I ask this question a lot to my guests and I, I, I don't think it plays a part. Maybe there is a but like I'm kind of fascinated by AI and um, just because I think I believe in it. I'm a little alarmed by it. Like I think it's going to really eliminate a lot of jobs. Fortunately, it's I, I can't ever see it eliminating your job because I just don't see that happening. But does AI play a part at all in in the creative world? Like in terms of do you use it or do you see yourself using it in the future? I, you know, I, I don't want to never say no because you never know. But as I told my students, it took me 40 years to work with these. So I don't know if 3D printing is not my style. But that said, I, you know, I've experimented with Photoshop and done a multimedia with Photoshop and things like that. So you never know. I mean, but I, I'm not a fan of it because I do like working with my hands so much. Okay. And I think it takes away from the creative process. I think we were... I think that's another thing that I we're becoming such an immediate culture more so than ever that and it scares me because writers anybody in the arts it does take time to get your voice and if you're thinking that it's going to take ten years you got to think rethink that again because it, you're still young I mean as a Tell my students, I mean, it goes quick, but, you know, walk slowly yeah. so you can really pick it up. Because at times I was too quick and I kind of regret some of the pieces I sold because I I wanted to prove to people that I could do it. And now that I look back, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't my best work. 
So what, what do you regret selling it or not working longer on it to complete I it? I think not working long enough on it, knowing mm -hmm. that it were, I, I was more haste more oriented than really process oriented. Okay. If that makes sense. Just, I'm just curious. Cause like, I love movies. I'm always, you know, watching movies about whether someone's a chef or someone's just really good at what they do. Do you feel like having a glass of wine or, you know, smoking a cigarette or something like, does it help like, or are you better when you're just clear mind, clear head? Or I, I have an assumption that a lot of artists might, um, imbibe. Yeah. I mean, I'm the, I'm the artist that doesn't drink and doesn't smoke. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's my question is, does, is that a big part of your world or is that just um, an assumption that's not accurate? I th it is, but if you're really good at what you're doing and you're, and you're my age and Neil, the other sculptor that lives in town is a little older than I am. It's, it's a discipline and you have to treat it. So, and you know, if you're going to do that path of the Jackson Pollock world, let's say, and drink your weight, you're going to kill yourself. And, you know, I've, I know bankers or, you know, brother-in-laws or people that I've known that were great athletes that went on to play semi-pro baseball and couldn't make the next level because they drank themselves to death. I mean, so it, you have to, I think you just have to look at it professionally. And for me to look at it professionally and having kids, I just choose not to drink and smoke. Yeah. And I kind of brought it up because I think that maybe, uh, and I won't assume, but a lot of younger adults might get use things, substances or whatever to to reach this level of awareness or whatever. But I think when you get into the world and you start trying to create a career and a reputation and whatever, you, you kind of the creative side can only take you so far. You also have to have a, a business sense and a, and a uh, dedication and um, a commitment to kind of like take care of yourself because you'll burn out and then, you know, you're gone in your thirties or whatever. So I think it's interesting that, um, my, my assumption is that if you're really good at what you do and you stand the test of time, you've learned how to take care of your body, your mind, your spirit, and all of yeah. the above. It's true. And it's so well said. I mean, it's, as I tell my students and I think meditation, yoga, you know, whatever you need to do is much better than, you know, getting, taking a six pack of beer every night it just you know it deludes you it takes your spirit away and again why are you doing your work if you're doing it and drinking what is is that fulfilling your needs and your spirit yeah. and and i'd like you i mean fortunately this is my spiritual path and you know teaching is also my spiritual path so I've gotten, I've been very, very blessed and lucky to do both at the same time. And um, I just don't want to knock wood, knock that, not knock that um, off my perch I, yeah. and be blessed every day that I can do what I do. So if you were to start over, um, I know it's a tough question because sometimes you get to where you are based off life experiences, but knowing what you know now, like, would you have followed the same path exactly? Or would you have, uh, <laughs> cha ch changed it up a little bit? I think and the reason, the reason I ask that is because you've learned a lot in life. You've seen, you've gone down this pathway, but like I would do life very different based on some of these podcasts that I've had. I would 
totally do life different. And I don't take away what I've learned, but like, would you do anything different based off the wisdom that you've learned? You know, I would love to say yes, but it probably no. I, I was such a knucklehead. And sometimes yeah. I was so like in like, this is the way it should be for a long time. And now I'm just kind of like, again, you know, like you said, the belief systems are kind of, especially after, you know, this last election and wh where our world is today and all the things that you're here or I'm hearing, I'm like, doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think I wouldn't, I, I would be much more, maybe forgiving to myself, not as dogmatic. I think that would be the best way. Okay. Like, you know, this is the way my sister will even attest that, you know, for an artist, you're the most rigid artist I've ever seen. And I think it's just, sometimes it's fear because I was like, I, I, I don't know what, what it's not like to be that way. Yeah. I think that athletics played a big part in that. And I was fortunate enough to play athletics and, and that gives you a great system of be disciplined, be, you know, be there, be present, work yeah, hard. I agree. That was my life. And I thought I would make a living out of it. And I can't tell you how many things I've learned, like just playing football and getting knocked on my butt and then realizing that's life. Yeah. You, you get back up, but like, I can, it's interesting as I've grown, I, I I, I can bump into people and I can tell the people that play team sports and the people that didn't play team. Like there is something about sports um, that teaches you a lot about life. So I'm, I'm right with you on that. Yeah. I think the to your point, I, I, my, my old coach and I reconnected after 40 years of not talk. I mean, and I was his last captain of the school that we, that he went, he went to another school after that. So we had a great connection. It just happened that 40 years elapsed and a lot of things happened. And it just occurred to me that he, we had the first all black backfield in our league. And it, and he never made a word of it, never said anything about it. We won every game and we were a team. We were a team of brothers. Yeah. And one of, you know, some of those guys are my godfather or I'm their godparent of one of their kids. And we just, we never look, and I, and I called him up and just said, thank you for doing that. Thank you for not making that a point. Thank you for making me aware that he was a good guy just because he was a good guy and he could block really well, or yeah. he, he ran much better than I would ever run. Um, and I'm just, I think that's kind of, I think that's where I would say to the kids nowadays is that, you know, just be organic with it. Don't make you know, be you and, you know, like all this stuff that's going on around now, it's like, you know, I, I just be blessed that you have, I don't know, maybe I'm mumbling around. I just, I'm not so mumbling. glad that we're not, that I was fortunate enough to look at that and say, wow, I was really lucky to have that and not make that a big deal. And then have friends that from all over the Philadelphia area because of that. Whereas I, if we made it a big deal, we may not have had that. I hear you. I, um, I like what you said about being you. There's a quote about comparison, which is the ultimate thief of joy. 
And I think a lot of times when you're not you, you're looking and you're comparing and you're trying to be someone you're not. And that's just a very exhausting way to live, I think. It's true. And it's never, I mean, it's Icarus going up the hill and the balls, you know, the rock's going to always fall down and then you're going to go back up again. So, and that's kind of really what life is. And if you, if the rock could be just constantly looking at somebody and if you throw that rock away, yeah, I mean, because there's there's always somebody that's got a better arm that draws better than you or, you know, runs faster than you all, you know, and a lot of it is simply, you know, I got, I have a great work ethic. Yeah. I mean, and Myron would attest that, you know, he would laugh at me and said, you, you didn't have the most talent in the world, but you're the biggest knucklehead I've ever seen. And you wouldn't leave. And that's why I admire you so much. You just didn't leave. So, you know, it's, it's talent, but it's also work. And I think that's the beauty of, uh, where I sit right now is that I like it. I like working. It doesn't bother me. I love it. Yeah. I uh, was a study that said what's the component that leads to success. They did all these studies and it was the number one was grit. Yeah. And uh, like the other day I was on the property doing manual labor and trying to get my 16 year old son to help. <laughs> and he just was bitching about it. And I'm like, it worries me because like life is, this is life. Life isn't, you know, sports and all the fun stuff life is, and the grit, you know, even as an artist, you're talking about, you have to have the grit. Um, I think to kind of sustain, just curious, what'd you play? Were you a quarterback or halfback or what? I was a quarterback until 10th grade. Yeah. <laughs> then they switched me to linebacker and then I played the college at linebacker. Where'd you I was, play? I played at division three schools. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. My but dad. Was, the oh, worst thing that the best thing that happened to me was that, or the worst thing that happened to me is when my back went out and I quit football. The best thing that happened to me was that I quit football because yeah. it was just became like, as you know, it's it your body just gets tanked. I had uh, some serious head injuries, and I had a girlfriend whose brother died in a high school game, Ooh. and then my my brother played in college. His buddy died, and my dad actually played at Florida State. Uh, and he was recruited as a, you'll like this story. He was recruited as a quarterback. So he grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and he was pissed that he didn't get any love from Notre Dame, but Florida state brought him over and he was so slow. He was a big guy. They moved him to fullback and then he was too slow for that. So they moved him to offensive line and then they nicknamed him slow motion. <laughs> uh, but he was roommates with Burt Reynolds uh, back in the day. Oh, that's and awesome. So he had some pretty funny stories about Burt. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love football and sports. I think it's such a. It's a great. I, I don't know. I, I think it's the greatest team sport, but it's also a great melting pot sport. Yeah. I mean, there's. Yeah. I mean, my team, We. I mean, I mean as I. Yeah, it just was. We had so many different eclectic kids. And when I, even in junior high school, it was pretty funny. I could name all the kids that I was the quarterback and all the kids that played in front of me, the guys that were the wide, I mean, it was, and they were just a bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, we were just like trying to be like, and we wear the high top converse and goof around and thinking that we were going to go pro and, you know, the chances of that are few and far between. It's hard. I, uh, I've been really enjoying hockey. I'm, I'm new to hockey. And Kraken just 
one last night against Colorado. And I'm fascinated by that sport because not only are they playing this amazing sport, but they're playing it on skates on ice and like their skating is just friggin' unbelievable. But anyway, um, but so we're going to wind this down before we kind of end this, you understand kind of what I'm trying to do. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think you might want to say to somebody that's considering this career that would be really important for them making a decision? Cause this is a big commitment in life. And, um, you know, you spend a lot of time working and my hope is that you're enjoying the ride. Truly. And I think that's the best thing you could say to anybody. Enjoy the ride. I mean, even when it's not going your way, I mean, and which honestly, you know, your twenties, thirties, forties, even now it's sometimes you don't get a commission that you think you're going to get, or I, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get into the um, Bakersfield art museum, but it may not happen. And that's a disappointment, but it, you know, that's life. You just yeah. reload, as you yeah. said, the grit. And I love it. I love it. I think, hey. I think to your point, it's so funny. I don't know if you do this, but we used to do gassers. And we would, like in the summer, we would call the High Noon Club and we'd run three miles. And then we would do three 100s, 1020s, 2010s. And then we would have to run down to the lake where, where then we could take a, our bath or shower. And Every time I get stuck on a piece, I think of those gassers. I think of those that tw- that that last 10, 10, 10, 20s that I would be like, I really don't want to do this. I want to pretend like I'm throwing up. I don't want to. I just I'm opting out for this. And then you do it and you're like, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, so. no, I, I can relate. We didn't have gassers, but I'm guessing. Did you grow up playing in Philly? I did. So you probably had humidity. Oh, yeah. So I bet you that lake felt pretty good. It felt really good. Yeah. I, I can't imagine doing two days like in Texas or Florida or Louisiana. Like that's a, my, my daughter uh, boyfriend is a really good football player who will be playing in college. And he went and visited Alabama uh, a while ago. Wow. And, and he was just like talking about the heat and the humidity. And it's like, I don't know if I, you know, I mean, I don't know if I can handle that. And like, I know I can't. Yeah. Uh, I bet it's a different world, but Hey, Joe, you're awesome. I, you know, you've always been a really, um, great guy. And I know I haven't talked to you in a, in a while, but super nice to come on. And I, I, I love interviewing you because I don't know anything about your lifestyle and, uh, <laughs> and it's interesting to me. Um, I'll, you know, I think a lot of people who are watching this are definitely going to benefit. So I really appreciate it. Um, and, um, that's it. All right. God bless. See you soon. All right, buddy. 